0: Welcome to the State of Research podcast, brought to you by the Office of the Vice President for Research at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Mason Force, and with this podcast, I hope to bring to light the world-renowned research that takes place here at CSU. By interviewing researchers, we can demonstrate how discovering answers to complex questions is a journey filled with unique stories. Throughout this podcast, I hope you'll be inspired by these stories of determination and innovation that propel us into the future. This is the State of Research. On this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing a professor from my own computer science major. Dr. Russ Beveridge joins us today to talk about his cutting-edge work into machine vision and artificial intelligence. Professor Beveridge, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate you coming down here to meet me in the studio. Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: So let's, let's just get started generally.
0: What is it exactly that you do, like
1: in a broad sense, here at CSU? So I do research, I do teaching, and I do service. That's the stock answer of any faculty member. I work in an area called computer vision and there's an entire community that does research in this area. It's changed a lot in the 30 years I've been part of it. It's now a very large community. That's service. Teaching, we were actually talking about that before. I helped develop the web development class for the computer science department. The web has become kind of a big thing and one of the great things about being a professor is I had to teach myself how the web (laughs) works so that I could turn around and teach its students. Wow. The research is really the thing people get drawn to quickly, I think, if you're talking to academics, because it's about basically changing the world. It's a very exciting time to be a professor of artificial intelligence, but of course it's (laughs) been exciting to be a professor of artificial intelligence for the last 30 years. The number of changes we've seen is just astronomical. Wow, I can only imagine how much the field has changed since you started. When when was that when you got involved? I did my undergraduate degree at UC San Diego and I graduated Mm -hmm. in 1980. I have fun now with my gray hair looking at my students throwing out (laughs) dates like that because it tends to wake them up like, whoa. (laughs) Uh, I didn't actually want to do AI when I left UCSD. I was very, very concerned about energy and the environment. That was my minor. And I actually went to work for Pacific Gas and Electric as part of their long-range corporate planning and got to work in downtown San Francisco and wear a suit every day and (laughs) drive great big mainframe computer models that were part of Pacific Gas and Electric's long-term planning. And then you had this
0: epiphany moment where you decided you wanted to kind of change your, uh, your path? Um,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had a mentor at UCSD, a professor named Robert Cherky, who taught a meta- metaphysics class, mm-hmm. which dealt a lot with human psychology and physics. I and mean, he was in basically partial to full retirement and was just having fun. He just blew up my mind on multiple occasions, <laughs> which is what mentors do. I mean, he definitely challenged me. And I kind of went, okay, I could keep doing this or I could really go after my real love, which, and it's not necessarily obvious, but I, I went into artificial intelligence because I'm extremely curious about human intelligence, mm-hmm. but I'm just not really, for whatever reason, I'm a little too much of a geek to feel, I feel like I was cut out for psychology. So I <laughs> went, well, if we can build one, we'll probably understand it better. So that led me into graduate school, et cetera. At the time, I had no idea I wanted to go to grad school, but I knew that I was getting interested in this very young field, artificial intelligence. So I actually went to the national conference in 1983 and attended talks that I had no idea what was going on at all, but at least I got to see what schools were doing work. Yeah. And I went and did my master's degree and my PhD at the University of Massachusetts. I actually got directed immediately into what was called the computer vision lab because I had written my essay that I wanted to understand how it was People, when walking down a trail, spot a squirrel off on a log at, you know, 200 feet away. And of course, subconsciously, it's not like you have to work hard and go, I wonder what that animal is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a squirrel. Right. It's, it's, our brains are quite well constructed for pattern recognition. So I basically did my PhD in computer vision. And at the time, it was a virtually impossible task. <laughs> my advisors went around and took slides of, basically stood in front of houses in Amherst, Massachusetts and surrounding areas and digitized these, which was a big deal. And then we worked for years on trying to write algorithms that would say things like, that's the front door. Wow! And it was all very science fiction in the 1980s. The acronyms I always teach people, Defense, Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, Mm -hmm. which has basically made computer science what it is, at the time was pouring money into, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had algorithms that could understand what they see in pictures if you fast forward 30 years we just take it all for granted if you type in wombat to google and say show me pictures of wombats they've got wombat recognition they've got general object recognition working very well so this isn't something that doesn't exist you're trying to create it's already pretty much widely used right well one of the things about artificial intelligence in general and i I was out in Washington, D.C., oh, I don't know, 17, 16 years ago or something. And I had a free afternoon, which is rare. And I went to the Air and Space Museum. And I and it was kind of sobering walking around looking at the achievements of air and space because they're very tangible. Mm-hmm. You either are on the moon or you're not. Right. Um, there's nothing kind of ambiguous. And when a rocket launches, you know, everyone can see a rocket launch. Very obvious. Artificial intelligence is a very odd field because, you know, it's impossible until it's easy. Most people still aren't consciously aware of all the places that the easy parts, quote unquote, and, you know, one of the easy parts now, voice recognition. Siri. (laughs) Exactly. Siri was an outgrowth of a DARPA program over 10 years ago now that was on what's called agents. And an agent is just a general word for some program, some bit of artificial intelligence programming Mm -hmm. that can interact with a person and help a person solve a task. You know, Siri went from, again, something that was pie in the sky, impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, the very notion that you could wake up in the morning and go, hey, Shlomo, what's (laughs) going to be the weather today? I did that this morning. That's exactly what I did. You know, that's now commonplace. What we actually are working on right now, we're part of a dark program called Communicating with Computers, which our current program manager was the program manager for the program that gave rise to Siri. What we're working on is basically visually aware agents so that if i say something like hey shlomo what am i pointing at my agent should be able to see what i'm pointing at and make sense of it and go you're pointing at your keys or you're pointing at the cat or i have no idea why you're pointing at that i don't even (laughs) know what it's called the notion that agents will share a physical space with us and be aware of the same things we're aware of that's very much our lab's current focus because indeed wombats are kind of a solved problem labeling wombats was (laughs) we got that down we're we're good at that is this more like
0: almost turning the world into your user interface
1: kind of the speed with which we are spending our lives with our own personal agents when we go to work we work with agents is remarkable and it's not slowing down Mm. and so when i look at really the cutting edge of computer science and i'm stealing wantonly from some of my brightest friends when I say the following. There's really sort of two areas of computer science right now that people, if they stop and think for a moment, it's part of their moment-to-moment life. One is cybersecurity. It's not my area of expertise. But keeping these systems so that they're doing what we want them to do mm-hmm. and not what somebody else asked them to do, but sometimes somebody we wish wouldn't have asked them to do that, is huge. And in fact, the computer science department has a new cybersecurity center. Um, the flip side is where I basically live, which is machine learning, artificial intelligence, machine perception, ubiquitous machine perception, and yes, at that point, you're really talking about you know as you say, you woke up this morning and there was Siri. Exactly. You know, I have a 16-year-old son, and I don't see a reason why when he's 26 years old, he's not just going to take this so much more for granted than I could ever have imagined. Do you read much
0: science fiction ever?
1: Have you? Oh read- yeah. Yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah. My son and I just actually went through the whole iRobot series. Oh, those are great. Yeah. Um, Asimov, it's just it's wonderful to see what insights he had and, of course, what things he didn't get right. So, yes, mm-hmm. I, do, I do like science fiction very much.
0: I read a lot of it myself, and it always you know, just gets my mind racing. Do you think that's kind of where we're
1: headed? <laughs> to no. Some, to some extent? I don't. I perennially try to remain an optimist. Mm-hmm. In fact, my father was an inventor. He actually did early work on radar and he was perpetually cheerful about technology, despite the fact that one of his areas of expertise was computer simulation of nuclear Armageddon. I mean, I grew up in a oh, very heady that's, household. That is very heavy. Right? No, I just, yeah, you know, drop that. What did your dad do? Well, you know, he put together a team of people that could simulate what a nuclear first strike would look like. And that, I'm, not, I'm not making an ounce of that up. So I grew up with this very complex relationship between technology is neither good nor bad. Mm -hmm. What human beings choose to do with it is everything. With that, fast forward 40 years, if I look at artificial intelligence today, I mean, there's no lack of people going, be scared, be very afraid. And I don't want to, I mean, I just made light of something I shouldn't make light of. It's very real Mm -hmm. to be cautious. It's very real. If I had any sort of imploring plea to people, take security and privacy seriously, this stuff is very real. But I think it's a terrible mistake to think of AI as this you know, monolithic howl that locks you out <laughs> of the ship. That's not really going to be the problem. The, the problems are probably far more complicated and dispersed than we right now can get a grip on. And I really wouldn't want to lose sight of the incredible advantages and help that this can portray. I mean, I'm right now working on a project and this is not artificial intelligence. This is from the computer science standpoint, pretty easy, but still I'm incredibly excited. There's a professor in chemistry named Chuck Henry who is been building, I would call them litmus paper on steroids. They're okay, basically paper <laughs> samples that you can subject to say milk. And then they'll go through a whole series of visual transitions, which at the end of which you can pretty much say whether you're going to die if you drink that milk. And for countries that don't have access to quick labs, this is huge. And so we're working right. We've already done work and we continue to work on computer vision algorithms that can interpret these samples and come up with a judgment. And if I look at work like that, I go, that's one of the first times in my professional life that I can go, yeah, no, the, sci- the computer vision science of this is not the astonishing part. The astonishing part is this could really make a difference for a lot, a lot of people.
0: So. If computers could recognize just visual stuff like that. It's amazing the possibilities, especially for applications like self-driving cars. That's that's immediately what comes to mind. Is that would be pretty important. If you're gonna have a car that drives itself, it needs to be able to recognize. Well, is that
1: a traffic cone or a child or you know what's what's in the road? Have you worked much with that? Oh yeah, um, <laughs> not recently. No, this is not an active area for CSU. But my colleague Bruce Draper and I both did our PhD work at the University of Massachusetts. We co-direct the computer vision lab here at CSU. And we were actively funded 1987 through for me, 1990 for something called the DARPA unmanned ground vehicle program. Okay. And if you go back and look at the very Genesis of a lot of the self-driving car work, it came out of a series of labs. Principal would have been Carnegie Mellon university. Mm -hmm. Uh, A person named Takeo Kanade founded the robotics Institute there. And basically, um, the first car to drive from the East Coast to the West Coast was part of something they did in the early 90s called No Hands Across America. <laughs> That's and, a great name. I love that. Yeah. And, and it's I bring it up because I, I can't give you the exact year. I want to say around 92, 93, maybe 94. They actually drove it from, I th- think, D.C. to the Jay Leno show. Now, of course, it didn't put on the brakes. It didn't hit the accelerator, but it was self-steering for almost the entire trip. So this... Yeah, that's progress. <laughs> where I'm going is this is not new. The stream of self-driving cars didn't just show up when Tesla came on the market. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's a field that I worked in actively until I went, I just... There's only so many things you can be expert at, and the field took off, and I went, okay, I'm going to go off and work on face recognition and various other things. So with that background, I have major arguments with my son because I really, really was pessimistic mm. two three years ago. I'm still nervous. You know, the AI that's required to safely drive me to Denver and not kill me is, it's not getting it right. 99.9% of the time it's getting it right. 99.9999999% of the time that's mm. going to make a difference. Otherwise you end up with carnage. So I'm still a, cautious of self-driving but as my son keeps beating into me it's actually tricky because the algorithms are becoming very competent and we're kind of at this interesting point where i don't i don't feel like i'm expert anymore to have a strong opinion about when we hit this crossover that yes they'll make mistakes and by the way the argument that the people promoting this technology is they make fewer mistakes than people right so they're not perfect but neither are we obviously yeah and And I think they're making more mistakes than we want to be completely fess up to in 2019. Mm. But again, let's step back. You know, I have a 30 year horizon. Oh yeah. Self-driving cars are already here and they're going to, in the next 30 years, become the norm. Just, you know, this is why being a computer science major is kind of a cool thing to do. (laughs) In other words, just that field alone is not going to require fewer people as it becomes more and more mainstream. So Yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited about self-driving cars. I'm, I'm also a little cautious today.
0: So in your line of research, what would you say are some of the biggest problems that you face? I guess just uh, what, what are the biggest challenges you're facing in this field?
1: Computers still really can't hold a conversation. Hmm. You know, go all the way back to Alan Turing and the Turing test. Things that we know now that we didn't know about the Turing test. We didn't know that, for example... People, This was a wonderful talk by a professor at Stanford at the National Artificial Intelligence Conference, oh, 18 years ago now. From a psychologist's standpoint, um, human beings kind of have a couple of categories into which to place something. It is a rock. Mm -hmm. It is inanimate and stupid. It is an animal, and we're already willing to give a lot of credit to animals, or it's a person. So from one standpoint, the Turing test was easy to fix. There was a program written... 25, 30 years ago called Eliza that basically did simple pattern matching and it played the role of psychoanalyst. You know, tell me about your father. Why do you feel that way about your father? And it sucked people in. I mean, (laughs) the whole chat bot thing is not new either. You know, the notion of writing a program that gets a person to interact, old idea. Getting them to do it well is still extraordinarily hard because as anyone who's, you know, tried to have a conversation with Siri, (laughs) Siri's not built to do that. Um, Siri doesn't keep track of context, doesn't, you know, if I start discussing my daughter's work in forensics, uh, she does basically college level debate. You know, I can't start a conversation with Siri. Siri, could you tell me about, you know, college forensics and some of the big events? I found this on the web is not what I'm expecting as a response. I'm expecting, you know, my agent to be as smarter than I am. So dialogue is a huge part interestingly my field is not dialogue my field is perception computer mm-hmm. vision can machines see at one level the mechanics of pattern recognition the problem i started with is it a squirrel mm-hmm. we did really solve that i mean i i know where i know how to train up tensorflow the google machine learning system to spot squirrels good okay. you know? mm-hmm. knowing the next step of well okay if you're so smart machine what can you tell me about all these images and you know all the different wildlife in the Rocky Mountains. And suddenly it's like, no, no, I, I, I put labels to things. That's what we're good at. Mm. Ironically, I would argue that the thinking about things still remains difficult in the sense that cancer treatments, one of the areas that DARPA is working on in the same program is an agent to interact with experts on potential novel ways to treat cancers. That's oddly an easy domain for artificial intelligence because it's highly codified. You know, there there's a language and there are rules for what you can and can't put together logically, and they're large data sets. That's easy for artificial intelligence. The harder is kind of the more subjective. It's, you know, why I brought up the, if I wanted to discuss with my agent, my daughter's most recent strategy in her most recent debate competition, yeah, we're not there yet. At least they can beat us in chess. Oh, yeah. Anything, yeah, you name it, chess, it's... <laughs> Well, sorry, you really hit a nerve on that one. This should not surprise us, right? They beat us at arithmetic a long time ago. Mm -hmm. If you can sufficiently systematize some piece of knowledge, then they're going to win.
0: So it's just a matter of systematizing
1: more and more complicated subjects, I suppose. I suppose, but I mean, this is where I remain kind of an optimist. Human beings have an amazing ability for random metaphor. Mm. And I mean, there's an entire branch of artificial intelligence devoted to you know, making machines understand metaphor. I mean, this communicating with computers program has a wing of it. One part of it is basically machine-generated poetry because people who are in this field understand that's hard um, and machines can't do it. Well, be careful. Slap my wrists. They can actually do it. I should be very careful. You know, AI and generating art has been something, again, nothing is new. That's been going on again for 30 years. There's a program called Aaron. Uh, by Harold Cohen that did beautiful artwork back when I was in grad school. But you can still, as a human being, look at some of this and go, okay, that's clever. Mm. But I, as a human being, kind of look at that and go, yeah, there could be a lot more there. Yeah, and how do you even judge that? Because like, if you're playing chess, it's very
0: obvious to know which moves are legal and how you win. But computer-generated poetry? I don't don't even know if I could judge human-generated
1: poetry, to be honest. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And you're completely right. There, there we're into a realm that is very subjective and very mm-hmm. human. And the thing you haven't asked me is what what I think is inspiring about being computer science for someone who's casting around for majors. Uh, the field has this um, bad stereotype of being very dull and, well, you know, it's it's writing next year's compiler or something. And that's just so far from the truth. I mean, if you look at where the kind of things we've been talking about, this is all computer science. This is all taking advantage of what we've built so far to go, well, where do we go next with this? That's what I loved about the
0: field. Computer science just felt like the future. Right. Like I said, I love science fiction, and, and it's it's not going to be fiction forever. So, No, it's not. Moving <laughs> so fast, it must be difficult to keep all these classes updated just at, at the
1: pace that the field is moving. Let's get academic about how CSU works. Mm-hmm. Computer science is very happily ensconced in the College of Natural Sciences. And you know, before I get in trouble with my dear colleagues, all the natural sciences are moving forward. Um, you know, physics, chemistry, (laughs) etc. Of course, yes. Some of my best friends are in chemistry. But when I talk to people in other departments and I talk about how their sophomore level courses are structured, yeah, it's really hard to be in computer science. It's it's it is a very fast moving field and you're what the class you're taking right now, web development or web programming, as I hope it's slowly being renamed, (laughs) um, is just a poster child for that. Half of what you're learning in that class did not exist 12 years ago. It just didn't exist. And I'll tell an anecdote about that, which is my original undergraduate major at UCSD was mechanical engineering. And I spent a year mastering differential equations. And I learned how to figure out precisely how many centimeters a, three meter beam would deflect if you put an elephant on its end and i and you know for a while i was totally intoxicated by analytical analysis calculus and then i got bored i went okay right. now i know how to do that and i okay. had a fortuitous meeting with the chair of our department and i said okay I, i've learned mechanical engineering i am bored with mechanical engineering and that was the first time i went oh i have a problem and he said well we have the system science major that's much more interesting it's all about control theory and how to make things behave properly on their own. Okay, that's for me. Good. Going back, this ties directly to your question. There's a comedy group out of California that coined the line, everything you know is wrong. It was a cheap toss-off comedy remark. (laughs) And I immediately went, oh no, I'm going into computer science. A field which every decade, everything I know is wrong will become the operative phrase. (laughs) And it's way too overstated. And of course it's not true. And of course we have a core and a foundation and you've actually been through a lot of it. But in computer science, you just really have to be comfortable with change mm-hmm. because every decade, priorities, you know, et cetera, what you think is the most important thing to teach undergraduates, it changes. If you focus too much on one, one piece, you're gonna get left behind.
0: <laughs> exactly. All right. So thanks again for coming down here and meeting me. Really enjoyed our
1: conversation. It was my pleasure.
0: And that's all we have for today. I had a fantastic time talking to Dr. Beveridge, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation about the past, present, and future of artificial intelligence as much as I did. Until next time on The State of Research.